I want to read a couple of verses of scripture found in the book of Genesis chapter number 12, beginning at verse number 10. Uh, Genesis 12, verse number 10. The scriptures will be on the screens for our family in the building and a part of our global campus. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. I want to stop the reading of scripture there and tag this title to this text. Here's the topic of today's teaching. I bust the windows out your car. Clap your hands if you're not scared. You're like, where is he going with this? I bust the windows out your car. On September 16th, 2008, a soulful sister named Jasmine Sullivan released a record entitled, I Bust the Windows Out Your Car. And the first segment of the song said the following, I bust the windows out your car. And no, it didn't mend my broken heart. I'll probably always have these ugly scars, but right now, I don't care about that part. This song was the articulation of the real and raw emotions of a person that has been plagued by a painful experience to the degree that they are provoked to engage in an act of retaliation in an attempt to make the person who hurt them hurt. And although as followers of the ways of Jesus, we do not endorse or condone these types of acts, as people of empathy, we can understand what precedes them. I feel safe in saying that many, if not most of us, know what it feels like to hurt so badly that you want the person who hurt you to hurt also. And if this is a segment of the sermon where you are a bit confused and you can't relate, I'm glad because it means that you haven't experienced the kind of pain that provokes you to think about things you would never think about. It means you hadn't experienced the kind of pain that has provoked you to consider some things you wouldn't normally consider. The kind of pain that provokes you to consider saying some things you would normally say or doing some things you would normally do. Is there anybody in the room and online that has enough experience to agree with pastor that pain has levels? Come on, there's a degree of pain that agitates you, but then there's another degree of pain that paralyzes you. There's a degree of pain that, uh, that is inflicted upon you where you still can carry out your daily duties, and there's a degree of pain that will immobilize you and rob you of sleep. There's a degree of pain that will take your appetite when the pain has nothing to do with your hunger. Is there anybody in the room that knows what it's like to deal with intense pain. And the enemy uses pain to provoke us into temptation for retaliation to inflict hurt upon the person that hurt me. 
And one of the only ways to overcome the temptation for retaliation is to have a revelation that the behavior we assume will hurt the other person is actually behavior that hurts us more. If you actually bust the windows out their car, you might catch a charge. This is why it is unwise, unhealthy, illogical, and unbiblical to allow the hurt that someone or something has caused you or me to push us to the place where we behave in ways that hurt us even more. If they didn't love you well enough to not hurt you, then you need to love yourself well enough not to continue to hurt you. Did you hear what I just said? It means that there is some responsibility that I have to take for the stewardship of my own soul. At some point, I have to get a revelation that this is who you are. And I've got to respond to that revelation by setting the kind of boundaries that protects my soul from the toxicity of your refusal to evolve into a better version of yourself. I cannot put my well-being in the hands of your immaturity. So I've got to learn not only how to love God. Come here, church. I've got to learn how to love what God loves. And God loves me. And for those of you who have a spiritual heritage that causes you to believe that self-love is selfish. May I remind you of the words of Jesus when he was questioned by a leader in the law regarding what is the most important commandment. And Jesus says to them, you are to love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul. And then he says, you are to love your neighbor as yourself you actually can't love people well until you learn to love you right y'all not talking to me because some of you are saying no pastor when I didn't love myself well I loved other people that was my problem I loved other people and I didn't love me no you didn't you pleased them and you called it love let me go to this side just because you call it love doesn't mean it was love. If you don't love you, you don't have the capacity to love them. You please them, you appease them, you accommodated them, you capitulated to them, but that's not love. Love means sometimes I don't give you what you want. Love means sometimes I say what you don't want to hear. The Bible says who the Lord loves, he chastens. That wasn't love. That was pleasing. Am I making sense? <laughs> Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, we must be intentional about grooming and growing our love for God, our love for ourselves, and our love for others to the degree that we become willing to perpetually not seasonally, not periodically, not temporarily, but perpetually do the inner work to properly manage unbridled emotions. Busting windows out of a car is an expression of emotions that are unbridled. Come on, talk to me. We must be willing to do the work so that we can grow spiritually, so that we are influencing ourselves emotionally, so that even though we have feelings, feelings don't have us. Because it's one thing for feelings to be in us. It's another thing for us to be in our feelings. Come on, church. Therefore, those of us who are prioritizing purpose must embrace the following axiom. This is for my note takers. My success requires my sobriety. 
that I can't be successful if I'm not sober. My, I can't be successful relationally if I'm not sober. I can't be successful spiritually if I'm not sober. I can't be whole emotionally if I'm not sober. I cannot advance professionally if I am not sober. And the enemy understands the importance of our sobriety. And this is what is often under attack. He attacks you by attacking your sobriety. Because he knows when you're drunk, you're vulnerable my God when you're drunk your decision making is impaired when you're drunk you link up with people that you would not link up with where is the 1230 today when you are sober when you are drunk you entertain things that you would not entertain when you are sober and this is why some of you need to pray new friends into your circle. This is why some of you need to get in a change group. Because when you drunk, but you got friends around that are sober, your sober friends will keep you from being destroyed in your drunken state. Will somebody pause right now and thank God for sober friends? When you are about to send that text, they said, don't you send that text. When you are about to pull up, they said, give me your keys. When you are about to go back, they reminded you of why you left in the first place. Thank God for sober friends. Girl, where you going? Turn around, come back home. You need some give me your keys people in your life. So when I say sobriety, people think intoxication. And when we say intoxication, culturally, people only associate intoxication with alcohol. What I'm arguing today is, is that alcohol is not the only intoxicating agent. What I am actually arguing is that one of the most dangerous forms of intoxication is emotional intoxication when there is an emotion that is so unmanaged and so unbridled that it clouds and impairs your reasoning and your judgment and it allows you to be okay with behavior temporarily that you would not be okay with long term it, it come on now it puts you in a I don't care mindset when a I don't care mindset is always seasonal. It never leads to full relief. Because when a person hurts you, hurting them never hurts them enough to heal you. Did you hear what I just said? When you hurt them, you realize hurting you didn't stop me from hurting. So now I want to hurt you some more. <laughs> Am I making sense here? And the enemy understands this, which is why he is after our sobriety. And maybe this is why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. Why, Darius? Because your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So it means I don't even have to be strong to avoid being devoured. I just need to be sober. Are you here? Maybe this is why Solomon, one of the, well the, one of the, besides Jesus, wisest men to ever live, says this in Proverbs 29, 11, Only a fool gives full vent to their rage. He didn't say a fool, only a fool has it. He said only a fool gives full vent to it. 
has no filter, has no boundaries, just emotionally unloads. He says, but the wise bring calm in the end. Y'all missed it. They bring calm in the end. It means that they are subject to, the wise are, the same kind of tendencies and practices as fools. It means that they may begin to temporarily engage in some of the same tendencies and practices of the fool. But the wise get a revelation of their behavior mid-action. And they're able to catch themselves and reel themselves back in. All of the perfect people be quiet. But if you're glad God reeled you back in, y'all not talking to me. Some of y'all just sit there and don't say anything. But if you've ever been on the edge of some self-sabotaging behavior and God reeled you in, you ought to thank him for that. Maybe this is why James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak. And slow to become angry. And slow to become angry. And slow to become angry. Uh, and slow. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm looking. I love this church. It's weird. Because I hear some of you in the spirit, you just say, help me, Jesus. Because I, I am not slow. I'm a runner. I'm a track star. I'm not slow. It does not take much. I'm all the way there. I love Jesus, but I will go there very quickly. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Maybe this is why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27, in your anger, do not sin. One translation says, be angry, but sin not. So it means that it's okay to have the emotion of anger, but don't allow that, emotional, that emotion of anger to drive you to a sinful response. And then he says this, do not let the sun go down on your wrath or while you're still angry. Now, wait a minute, because some people will read that and say the sun is going down, so we need to not be angry. Guys, this is what's called the truism. It's not like it's not it's the new covenant. It's not a law. It's a truism. What it means that you got to extract the point that Paul is making. It's the spirit of the, the law, not the letter of the law. No, 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 Pastor. No, it's say the. Well, what if they hurt me at night? The sun already down. I got 24 more hours to be mad. It's a truism, guys. The point is, don't live in that emotion longer than is necessary. Why? Verse 27. And do not give the devil a foothold. When I stay in that place emotionally, I'll, I allow the devil to put his foot in the crack of a door. And once he gets his foot in, he can get his leg in. And once he gets his leg in, he can get his torso in. And once he gets his torso in, he can get his body in. But it starts with a foot. And I love Bruno, but when it comes to anger, we are not leaving the door open. We are closing the door because we will not give the enemy a foothold. How you doing? Where you at? Oh, you got plans. Don't say that.
Pastor, why are you leaning into emotional sobriety? I got this revelation a couple of weeks ago and it wrecked me because I started seeing this all throughout scripture. And I was like, this is a blind spot for the average believer. But it is what the enemy has been using all throughout scripture. Are y'all ready for this? I can go through the majority of biblical characters and show you in some way how this emotion, how their unbridled emotion impacted their ability to accomplish all that God had called and created them to accomplish. I, 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 could, I could show you Moses who did not reach his redemptive potential. Who God spoke to and said, come here, I'm going to show you a land. You can see it. Here's your punishment. You get to see what you never get to have. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah. See, sometimes the punishment isn't the wrong that does happen. It's the, it's the missing of the good that doesn't. He says, here's your punishment. Look at this land. You get to see it, but you won't go in it. Why? Because he got intoxicated with the emotion of anger. And when God told him to speak to the rock, he hit the rock. And whether or not that seems as a big deal to you or me, it's a big deal to God because it is an indication of Moses's unpredictability. God said, Moses, I can use people that's not perfect. I can't use people I can't trust. I need to know even in your imperfections, you're not unpredictable. I cannot be worrying about which version of you I'm going to get when you're leading my people. I need to know when you are under pressure, you can maintain your poise. I need to, am I, am I talking to anybody? I could show you a gentleman named Absalom who was one of David's sons who actually destroyed his entire life. He undermined his ability to receive some of his inheritance because he was intoxicated with the emotion of ambition. He did not have what I call green light theology. He was always being pumped up and prodded and celebrated by other people. And he took their celebration as God's green light. He thought because other people were telling him he could do it and what he should be doing, that that was God's authorization for him to do it. See, come on. And Absalom had a lot going for him. And that's a blessing and a burden. Here's what you hear me say often. The more gifted you are, the more difficult clarity becomes. Because some people are trying to figure out what they should be doing. And it's hard to figure that out when you can do a number of different things and win. Does that make sense? So then people are telling you, you should do this or you can do that or you should be doing this and you can do that. They're right, but that doesn't mean God's giving you a green light. So for me, it doesn't matter who says what. I don't move based off of what people say out there. I don't move till I get a green light in here. And when he say green light, it's all gas and no brakes. Lord, don't you touch your neighbor, but give them an air high five and say green light. Green light. I don't know what you've been waiting on. Green light. I don't know what you've been believing for. Green light. I don't know what door you've been waiting to swing open, but green light. All throughout scripture, we see examples of this. I got 11 minutes. Y'all good? All throughout scripture, I see examples of this, but there is no example that is more perplexing to me than the example of Abraham. There is no example that confused me more than him. I mean, this is an incredible man. If we eavesdrop on a conversation that God has with him in Genesis chapter 12, verse number one, you'll see God saying some amazing amazing, amazing things to him and about his future. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I'm going to show you. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with his past. It just means that he needed something new for his future. Make sense? And, and the Lord said, he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now at this point, he or his wife, we don't know which one, is infertile. So they can't even have children. 
And God says, I'm still going to make you a great nation because you caught up in the process when you just need to believe the promise. Your doubt is not in the promise. It's really in the process. Because you think the promise is contingent on a certain process. Not realizing God say, if I want to get something to you, I don't even have to use a process that already exists. I will create a new process in order to do a new thing in your life. Watch what he says. I will make your name great. Ooh. Listen to that. God tells another man, I'm going to make your name great. Don't men exist to make God's name great? But in the text, God is telling this man, I'm going to make your name great. But he gives us some context or some, some commentary to this statement when he says in Genesis 12 too, and you will be a blessing. So he's like, I'm not making your name great just to make your name great. I'm making your name great so that you will be a blessing. And the reason some people's name will never be great is because they're obsessed with their name being great. But if you will become obsessed with being a blessing, then you won't have to make your name great. God, come on here, will make your name great. This is important. Why would God do that? Because I know we use God's name, but God was going to use Abraham's name. He says, I'm going to make you live a life that's so legendary that generations who don't know me yet will hear about you. So when I get ready to introduce myself to them, I'm going to drop your name. When people ask me, who am I? I'm going to say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, Abraham that came out of nothing and became something, I did that. Abraham, the father of the faith, I did that. Oh yeah, Isaac, I did that too. Oh Jacob, I did. Is there anybody here that wants God to be able to drop your name? To say, if you want to know how good I am, look at what I did. This is amazing. He tells Abraham, I'm so committed to you that I'll bless those who bless you. That those that confer favor on you, I'll confer favor on them because when they're opposing what you're doing, they're opposing my agenda. So I'm going to take it personal. And I will curse whoever curses you, I'll curse. Because they're inhibiting my agenda. And all people on the earth will be blessed because of you. This is amazing. What does God have to think about a man to tell a man something like that? So he tells this man, hey, I need all this. I don't have time, but all this is contingent on you leaving. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah, he said, he tells Abraham all of this before he left. It's a prophetic promise, but it's tied to your obedience. You do not shout prophecy in the manifestation. The manifestation of the prophetic word is on the other side of your obedience. After you get through dancing, obey. After you get up being slain in the spirit, get up and obey. Y'all aren't talking to me. After you're done running, sit down, catch your breath, and you got to do what God said. I got five minutes. Here it is. The text says that God tells him to leave, and he leaves. This is so interesting to me. He leaves And he goes to a place, and the Bible says, when he gets to that place, we read this in verse 10, text says, that place that he went to experienced a famine. So I obeyed. I left where you told me to leave. 
and you gave, giving me these vague instructions. Where I'm going, I'm going to show you. Specific and vague at the same time. So I settle in this place, and I'm in this place for a season. Then the place I'm in hits a famine. The place I left didn't have one. But the place I'm in has a famine. And famine represents seasons of scarcity. It's when there is something that you need that is unavailable to you at the level that you need it. So obedience doesn't mean I'll avoid famine. Obedience may mean God gives me the wisdom to survive it. So they say, all right, this place is... uh, in a season of scarcity, we got to leave again. This is important because it lets you know that there are some things that you think are permanent that God knows are temporary. So they leave, and the text says they go to Egypt. Tari, I'm done. They go to Egypt. Almost. Got four minutes. Just it. it says they leave, and they go to Egypt. Y'all follow me? Okay, so when they go to Egypt, I want you to see something. Okay, let me, I don't know if I have to do this at the 1230, but just in case, uh, I want you to see something. I want you to read the Bible objectively. Okay, there's only one God in the Bible and his name, not Abraham, not Isaac or Jacob. So the apostle Paul says the stories that are written in the Bible are written for our learning. Is that right? So these people, not gods. So we're not going to criticize them, but you can't pull the riches from the scriptures if you don't look at them critically. They're not God. So you've got to see their humanity so you can learn from it. So it's some stuff I'm getting ready to point out that may shake your religious tree a little bit. But I want you to see something. This same man that God says is the father of the faith He's about to enter Egypt. This same man looks at his wife. Put my scripture on the screen. They don't believe me. He looks at his wife and said, you fine. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. So say you're my sister. So that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared. Okay, y'all not. Sisters, you got a man. You're married. You go on vacation in another country. You walk into the resort. He looks at you and say, you fine. These people are going to kill me so they can have you. So the whole vacation, if anybody walk up to me and speak and say, who is that? I want you to say, you're my sister. Come on. This is the only way you're going to get the riches out of the, put, take Sarah's name out and put your name in. Take Abraham's name out. Put your man's name in. Don't sanitize it. Now watch what he does. He says, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So he's saying, do this or I'll die. He's a man of God, isn't he? But that's manipulation. Y'all not ready. Let me, next week. See, come on, why did it get so tight in here? I said, that's a man of God, but he's not God, so he's imperfect. And now we see the exposure of some of his imperfections. He's a man of God, but look at that. That's manipulation. What kind of position are you putting her in? He's selfish. Y'all missed it. But I want you to see, put my scripture back up. I want you to see how he twists his words. I will be treated well for your sake. 
But earlier in the conversation, you said that they are going to kill me and let you live. So it was about me. But now I'm trying to make it about you. To talk you into. Lord, I'm out of time. Can I have five more minutes? Some of y'all need to hear this. Because this is a man of God doing this. Because some of y'all think just because he's Christian, that's enough. That's where you start. That's the first question. That's not the only question. Are you a manipulator? Do you, I go to church. That don't mean, that means I know where you at on Sunday. That does not mean I know how you are on Monday. I can't hear anybody. That is manipulation. Now I hear what some of you are saying. Pastor Daniels. How dare you take this one moment in this man's life and preach a whole story in one moment. How dare you exegete an isolated incident? Oh, you think it's isolated? You hadn't been reading your Bible then. Maybe you're not as biblically astute as you think you are. Because if you kept reading your Bible, you would see this is not an isolated incident. You would see in the book of Genesis chapter number 20 that they came to a place and the Bible says, y'all aren't talking to me now. The Bible says they went to the region of Nevej and lived between Kades and Shur. And for a while he stayed in Gerar and there in Gerar, not in Egypt, in Gerar, he says of Sarah, she my sister. This is a pattern. I know he hear from God, but it's a pattern. And I know he pray, but it's a pattern. And I know he's the father of the faith, but it's a pattern. And the pattern now is the problem. Here's the pattern. Every time he gets on foreign soil, he get drunk with fear. He's only sober in the familiar. Whenever he hits a season that's unfamiliar, then this same man who's a man of faith, when he's not on foreign soil, becomes a man of fear. When he is on foreign soil, he's a man that can't handle the pressure of the unknown. And Sarah got to submit to that. Y'all aren't talking to me now. She in love with a liability. You didn't hear what I just said. And everybody wants to lead. But are you responsible enough to not be a liability? You don't get to lead because you are of the male gender. You get to lead because you're mature enough not to be a liability to those that you love. I don't hear anybody. If you said amen during manology, you ought to be saying amen right now. She in love. I don't think y'all understand what happens. Culturally here, this cultural context, she didn't have an option. Culturally, women were treated as property. So she is literally at the mercy of the decisions of a man that's drunk. PD, my man don't get drunk with alcohol. But that doesn't mean he don't get drunk. Fear, rage, ambition, selfishness, intoxication. 
kiss. This your womanology sermon from Peter. <laughs> so this lady is literally at the mercy of the decisions of this man. And she, there were two times she was literally taken by other men. The Pharaoh in Egypt and King Abimelech in Gerard. Two times. But I want to tell you something about your God. Although we as humans exist interdependently, God still exists sovereignly. So that means although I am impacted by the decisions of another person, the totality of my life's outcome is not dependent on the decision of another person. Because Abraham let her go in a situation. But if you keep reading in Genesis 12, verse 17, you'll see in Egypt, the Lord afflicted serious diseases upon Pharaoh and his household, not because of Abram, but because of Abram's wife, Sarah. When he took Sarah into the household, God sent diseases into that house. No, 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 no. In Genesis chapter 20, in Gerar, it says that when Abimelech took Sarah, God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. Y'all aren't talking to me. You see, this is the power of God's sovereignty. When Abraham won't cover you. When Abraham won't protect you. When Abraham won't step up to the plate, God did. And God said, I'm not going to allow her welfare and her well-being to be determined by the decision of another person. He said, if they won't do it, I will. I feel like preaching in here today. David said it this way. David said, if my mother and my father forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. I don't know who this is for, but you're going to be all right. I said, you don't be all right. I don't care who didn't do what they said they were going to do. You're going to be all right. I don't care who didn't show up the way they said they were going to show up. You're going to be all right. When they step out, God steps in. I'm done, tired, y'all. Although Abraham didn't cover Sarah, God did. He won't allow the activity of another person to determine your well-being. You are not at the mercy of somebody else's dysfunction. But this cost Abraham. Cost him something. This lack of emotional sobriety. Were a couple of incidents, but I know it cost him something. Beyond the lifespan of those incidents, it, 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 it costs them something. It, it, it is a reflection of how the enemy wants to use emotional intoxication to destroy other areas. He, number one, he wants to use emotional intoxication to destroy your comrades. In other words, he wants us to be so emotionally intoxicated that loving you becomes a liability. So some people want you to stay and get sick as opposed to them getting better. I don't want loving me to be a liability. I don't want loving me to be hazardous to your health because I'm emotionally intoxicated. Not just your comrades. Number two, he wants to use it to destroy your calling. What you've been put on this earth to do. Your calling is carried out in, carried out in seasons, right? Your purpose is the reason for the creation of the existence of a thing. Your calling is God's invitation for your participation to carry out a certain role in a certain season. 
And so he calls you to different things in different seasons. So you don't give him one yes, you got to give him multiple yeses. He called me in the ministry. That's one yes. Then he called me in the pastoral ministry. That's another yes. Then he called, am I making sense? So, so they're going to be these different. And right, and right when God's getting ready to open the door to a new chapter in his story for your life, the enemy strategically times a trigger. He's strategic in his timing. He says, right when they get ready to step forward, I'm going to trigger them with something to get them to behave in a way where they take three steps back. Because I can't destroy their life. I couldn't in the Garden of Eden. I can only influence them to destroy it themselves. But because I'm a deceiver, if I can keep them mad at me because they think I'm the problem, they'll never fix the real problem. The devil doesn't, mad us, doesn't mind us being mad at him when we the problem. Because if we think he's the problem, then we've got to wait on him to fix it for it to be fixed. But when we see that we're the problem, we can fix it whenever we get ready. The triggers are always strategic in timing. And last but not least, number three, you ready? Your credibility. I'm going to ask y'all something. I don't know the answer. We're going to ask Sarah when we get to heaven. I know you stayed with Abraham after that. But how much did you respect him after that? I don't know. That had to cost him some credibility. And credibility is currency. A medium of exchange in the kingdom. Why, Pastor? It's one of your most important assets. Credibility creates access. Just as currency allows us to gain access to exclusive places or services, credibility creates opportunities that can only be accessed by those who can be trusted, not just those that are gifted. Credibility opens doors that gift doesn't. Credibility insulates you from attacks. It doesn't prevent attacks, but it insulates you from them because your credibility in the past will give you the benefit of the doubt in the present. Your credibility defends you in your absence. So even when people are saying things and you're not there to defend yourself, the credibility that you have established in the past begins to defend you. And it gives you the benefit of the doubt with reasonable people. Because you can't reason with unreasonable. You cannot be understood by someone who's made a decision not to understand. Number three, um, credibility amplifies the impact of your gifts. It's like, man, this is something that's so important. Sometimes people have a great gift and you want to benefit from that gift. But you you challenged because they come with it. (laughs) It's like, I want this gift, but I don't know if I want to deal with everything I got to deal with to get this. I'm good. when people don't check this, especially when people don't check this, they get to a season where they're not as relevant. And then their only options become doors that can only be opened by people who are desperate enough to tolerate what the rest of us refuse to tolerate anymore. One of, the, one of my greatest preaching influences is a guy named John Guns from Jacksonville, Florida. And John Guns said something to me years ago when I was early in ministry. I'll never forget it. Very honest and gracious man. He looked at me and said, Darius, you ain't nothing but a season. He wasn't diminishing my importance. He was helping me see that you're going to make a contribution to the earth. You're going to go to heaven. They're going to talk about you for a minute, and it's the next man up. 
All you are is a season. Manage yours well. And credibility attracts favor. Favor is not bestowed on those who earn it. That would make it something other than favor. Favor is bestowed on those who can be trusted with it. Credibility. Now here's the real. We're not judging. We're thinking critically. You're not judging Abraham. Because all of us have been Abraham. And because you're not perfect, perfectionist, you're going to have another Abrahamic moment. You're going to have a few. I know, that's real. And it's right. But here's what I love about God. Even though Abraham operated the way he operated, God, is in Genesis 20, when he's talking to King Abimelech, he's like, you got to go to Abraham, my prophet, and let him pray for you. After all Abraham went through, God looked at him and said, that's still my prophet. Here's the good news. God's a God of redemption. So it means that even when you have moments that impact your credibility, God will restore your credibility, listen to me, in the minds of those that are necessary for your destiny. He restores your reputation in the minds of those that are necessary for your destiny. So if their opinion about you doesn't change, it means their opinion doesn't matter. You receive that? So no guilt, no condemnation, because we all have been Abraham. But his grace is sufficient. We're going to get ready to go. I'm praying us out of here right now. I want you to lift your hands. We're going to do three things at once.